Hello, hello, and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of the pitch and the city, covering everything good, bad, and in-between in our great city. I am your editor-in-chief and host, Brock Wilbur. How is everybody this week? How are things? Things continue to seem awfully strange. I, uh, yesterday, had an emergency sort of thing I needed to find, and I live near a Target. Went to a Target. Uh, I don't think I've been to a Target in like a year. Uh, and certainly not in the last few months, so there, at a Target. Uh, there's a scene in the movie The Hurt Locker where uh, one of the military guys gets back to America after being overseas for so many years, and he's in a grocery store and has uh, a breakdown because uh, there's just so many options for cereal, and he can't choose between all of them, and the, the aisle keeps going forever. That choice paralysis was something that I... I was feeling just walking down long aisles of of so many things after only being like around like a very small grocery store and only when I needed to go out for the last few months. Uh, it, it was just a lot there. And uh, and also the only time in recent memory that I was able to just uh, do that thing that you do where you just stupid shop, where you're just sort of walking around and you're like, ah, is this something I need? I picked up a hat that said number one dad on it. And I looked at it for like five minutes. I was like, what am I doing? Why have I wandered away? I was trying to get in and get out of here as quickly as possible with my head down and touching as little as possible. And here I am holding this stupid hat and I'm not a dad, but I do have big dad energy. Lots of puns felt like a thing that I should have. I was just like, why do I want this? And then I walked down the toy aisle uh, and I was like, do I need a hundred dollar Lego kit of like this Star Wars thing. I was like, once again, what are you, what are you even doing? And at some point I found myself just sort of looking at funny shirts in the kids section. Again, don't have kids. Big, big man can't fit into children's clothing. I was like, what, a, what, what has capitalism done to my brain? But also like, I do kind of miss this. Uh, what I didn't miss was how there is a, uh, a really tense thing in the air <laughs> that you can find. Uh, I've, I had friends tell me that this was the case and I wasn't sure how prevalent it would be. And it, it, it certainly is that uh, people out in the world, uh, the mask wearers and the mask not wearers uh, seem to be having a real difficult time with each other, uh, which makes sense because it's wild to see a bunch of people taking care of themselves and the people around them. And then a bunch of people that won't, uh, and it doesn't work if we all don't do it. So it, it feels frustrating in that way. But I, I found that it was, at least in my experience and, and the experience of my friends, a very one-sided antagonism uh, towards the mask wearers, which I, I found odd. I was like, I think I might have had it in January. Uh, if I'm wearing a mask out, it is to protect you. So I, there there was like a, a guy that was sort of laughing at me in line and, uh, and some other people that just gave me looks like they thought I was the dumbest person alive. And I was like, well, I, I don't get it. I would understand it if I was giving the same sort of energy off to them. If we were meeting each other at the same level uh, where I was just like, you're, you're dumb and bad for doing this. And they were like, you're dumb and bad for believing uh, in this. And, uh, there's, there's a right answer in that, but I also was just walking around with a mask on, not glaring at anyone. <laughs> I found it found it odd and, and really upsetting, and uh, I don't think I'll be going out again for a while if, if that's what we're doing, if the, uh, if the cultural warfare uh, means that we're just going to 
start fighting, which you can see those videos on the news of people that just start punching each other over this. And it's like, um, we're already dying in, in record numbers. We don't need to start fist fights in the middle of big box stores. So that's that's my adventure into the world this week. Uh, so on this week's episode, uh, we have uh, the mayor of Kansas City, Quentin Lucas, uh, doing a quick little chat with us, catching up about things. Uh, we talk a little bit about what it is like to have the national media, uh, some right-wing sites, uh, call you a Nazi uh, for trying to make people uh, sign up uh, when they go into a business for longer than 10 minutes so that we can do some form of uh, tracing uh, around the coronavirus. Yeah, so that's the standard for being a Nazi right now. So I asked him, you know, how do you overcome the uh, the emotional uh, things around that and uh, continue living your life while people yell Nazi at you? We always love having Quentin on the show uh, for a little uh, Quentin and A, the Q&A. That's, that's a fun fun name that we've got for it. Um, and then after that, uh, we've got an interview uh, with Lynn Shelton, uh, Dan Liebarger, uh, who is a, a writer who's been with us for, for, for forever. He's been here for years and years. Uh, in 2012, he interviewed Lynn Shelton. Uh, and we have a, the, the audio recording of that phone interview. It's not it's not great, and our editor Terrence is going to clean it up as much as he can. Uh, but it is a uh, it is a fascinating uh, interview that they they do uh, about her movie that had just come out in 2012. Uh, she she died this week, and uh, I I did not handle it well, and I, I I know a lot of other people in the world did not. She was such an insanely talented director uh, who worked in TV and movies. Uh, made a lot of incredible dramas and comedies. My my personal favorite is one that she made called Hump Day uh, with the Duplass brothers back in the 2000s. She directed it. Uh, it is a movie about two guys that basically dare each other to make a gay sex tape, even though they are both straight, uh, as, as a challenge to see who is the better friend. Uh, and it it's a very, very small movie made on no budget, and it is the reason that I started making indie movies back in the day, because I saw that. I was like, that that ruled so hard and made me laugh so much. And they clearly didn't even have lights to light it properly. So, like, that's that's one to check out. But, like, she's made, uh, directed episodes of, of the show Glow and uh, tied to Glow and, and some of her other work. Uh, she was dating uh, the comedian and podcaster Mark Marin, uh, who is uh, having a obviously a hard time with this and uh his social media and and podcasting this week has been uh real real difficult too so we're gonna run that interview because uh wow what a loss uh that we've we've gone through here uh she was so young and had such a cool career uh ahead of her and behind her and uh yeah so that's uh that's an interview thing at the end uh to let you know a little more about her uh and right now we've got nick's music corner Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Last week, we featured David George's When We All Come Together, which featured a guest verse from rapper Kadesh Flow. This week, we have a track which shows off the rapper's other musical skills. Also known as Ryan Davis, Kadesh Flow is a hell of a trombone player, and that's shown off really well in I Bone in a Roundabout Way, off his most recent EP, I Hold On to Heat for Too Long. Built around a loop from Yes's Roundabout, this is a supremely chill instrumental that was previously only available for Kadesh Flow Patreon subscribers, but the rapper and musician assembled this collection for Bandcamp's fee-waving day on May 1st. 
You can get the EP along with a slew of material going back to the earliest days of Kadesh Flow at Kadesh Flow, K-A-D-E-S-H-F-L-O-W dot bandcamp dot com.
thank you, Nick. Uh, now it's time for our interview with Quentin Lucas. Quentin Lucas, welcome to the podcast. I, uh, I know that you just jumped off a call where you were trying to fight for $50 million in funding for the city. Um, what was that like? What, what, what are you trying to fight for the $50 million for? Uh, COVID relief, um, the CARES Act from the federal government signed by the president um, is supposed to go to help local governments respond to COVID. And so it allows to fund more testing, more contact tracing, all that sort of work um, over time for our paramedics. Currently, we've received zero dollars from the federal government. Um, we think that, you know, a city of our size is often able to receive a good deal more. In fact, the city of St. Louis, which has about 315,000 people compared to our 505,000 has already received about $34 million, I believe, in funds. And so, um, you know, just trying to make sure the people of Kansas City are well represented in how the spending goes. Feels like states and cities that are not seeing any funding, uh, that feels like political retaliation. Do you think that that's the case here? Or are we just being overlooked? <laughs> You know, right, exactly. It's um, it's kind of the story of my life. Either it's retaliation or you're getting overlooked. Sometimes it's both. I think from the um, congressional side legislation, it was overlooked. Um, the bill was largely pushed, at least at the House level, by Democrats. Uh, a lot of them looking to protect cities like New York City, that sort of thing. That's why larger cities have received a great deal of funding. Um, whereas those of us who are big cities from red states. So Atlanta is in this position. Cleveland is in this position. Kansas City, Wichita, for whatever it's worth, um, find ourselves kind of, you know, looking out. And then uh, the answer from a lot of government actors has been, well, you can work with your state, work with, for example, um, you know, Jefferson City to get the money more directly. And then there are challenges there where they also said, we'll work with your counties because, you know, I think uh, Republican governments usually like their counties better, broader, um, that sort of thing, and as opposed to the big cities. And so county governments have largely been in charge of trying to get money to the rest of us, and, and there has been where the conflict, if any, kind of exists. You, uh, you did a meeting yesterday at Town Hall with uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, where you both uh, expressed some uh, serious frustrations with how the administration is handling this. Uh, what is it like to be amongst a coalition of Midwestern mayors that are uh, not thrilled with how this is going? Um, you know, I think we're trying to, the reason we do these sorts of things isn't to just complain. I mean, I can turn on, you know, MSNBC or CNN and see complaints about Mayor, uh, Mayor Trump. Ah, we wish. Um, President Trump. <laughs> but um, If only. <laughs> if only, right. I've, I'd send him to New York City in a second, right? Um, but instead... Um, no, we were trying to let people know how much stuff cities have to do right now, right? When you talk about who's on the actual front lines, and yeah, every governor has their daily press conference of varying degrees of awkwardness, but really at the city level, we are in a position of funding the contact tracing that people are talking about is how you contain the virus. We're at that like direct level of trying to see what a reopen economy looks like. But if there's an outbreak, we're the ones that show up to do it. There is not a, a state health corps that shows up immediately. There certainly isn't the Centers for Disease Control showing up immediately if there's an outbreak. Instead, it's the Kansas City, Missouri Health Department. It's the, you know, it's that sort of group. It's the Columbia, Missouri, Boone County Health Department. 
And so um, I think we wanted to share some of our best practices we've used already, but also wanted to note how, you know, at this moment of pandemic, presidents, administrations, they, they matter. And to the extent that we're having a failed response, and, and look, I'm not one who actually cares to talk that much about the president. I took offense, like many of Americans who have any extra pounds, that Nancy Pelosi referred to him as morbidly obese. But at the same time, right, it's like there's important stuff for us to do. And it shouldn't just be shouting at reporters, talking about how you use hydroxychloroquine or any of these other things. Instead, it should actually be getting clear guidance from the Centers for Disease Control about how you reopen schools, how you reopen parks. I mean, these are the sorts of things that the Kansas City, Missouri, like Parks Department shouldn't be figuring out on its own. Um, And that's where I think we had some level, both of frustration, but also hope that maybe banding together, we can come out with good solutions for all those things. Do do you think that part of the the failure to get money here is because our numbers are low now, but that you know, the important thing would be to get the money here now so that we keep the numbers low, like not to wait until the numbers get higher and then try to throw money at it. Yeah, there's a big proving a negative issue that we're all running into, both with the yahoos that, you know, protest somewhere and say freedom now, um, and including the president of the United States who tweets in all caps, reopen America. But even with truly some government actors, I mean, we, we have not had huge problems. And so, you know, we're not that spooky wheel that's getting the oil. And I have concerns about that because, particularly in a city of our size, um, particularly as reopening is occurring, one big event could cause a rapid increase in infections. I mean, you look at, frankly, Wyandotte County, Kansas, the smallest county in kind of our core metropolitan area that has had more cases than any other jurisdiction, including Kansas City, Missouri, which is about three times its size, um, because I think probably the, the virus was there the earliest and it had an outbreak and it's continued to kind of just spread. I mean, the work that I have to do each day, and I'm fine doing it, um, it has been challenging. The fact that, yeah, I talked to Senator Blunt and Senator uh, Hawley on the regular. Hell, I talked to Senator Moran. I'm not in Kansas, right? Um, we visit with our county legislators about money and talking about how important it is what we're doing. I talked to Governor Parson each week. This is in many ways to actually just remind people that, yeah, this is a big deal still. We still need help. We still have priorities we're trying to address. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't just forget about Kansas City in connection with it. Uh from a policy standpoint, what's the most frustrating thing that you're dealing with right now? And from a personal standpoint, uh, what's the most frustrating thing to you uh, emotionally right now? Uh, from, a policy, from a policy standpoint, all of the above. Um, it's, okay, okay. Uh, what I mean by that is, like, the financing, the funding issue is certainly challenging at a time of declining or frankly obliterated convention and tourism tax revenues, sales tax revenues and others. The fact that we're borrowing from our general fund to help pay for testing that the federal government is paying for in places like New York City or Detroit is uh, incredibly frustrating. That's probably among the greatest. And the fact that I'm the only one who at different steps of the way was catching these funding problems, right? I've called some folks in Jefferson City and said, well, what the hell, Kansas City needs direct funding. And they're like, oh, you know, we didn't even think about that, but, you know, we'll figure it out. Uh, you know, that's pretty frustrating, but money always is. Um, as a policy matter, the aforementioned issue with the fact that I wish um, CDC, the Department of Health and Human Services, so many others, 
would actually give some clearer guidance, not just on how to reopen, but, you know, all right, what should we be doing in a restaurant? Are we all just going to fight about whether a study out of China is valid about airflow, right? Or are we actually going to do something to the effect of um, these are good guidelines that will keep you safer? And we need more of that in more industries almost instantly. Every day, I'm on a Zoom call with a school. And if there are enough parents or teachers, they're basically asking me about what are safe protocols for reopening. And I'm a lawyer. I'm a 35-year-old lawyer from Kansas City with no medical experience, right? And so I'm not qualified to answer that. I mean, I've talked to my health director, but other than that, it's like those are the sorts of things we need to be producing in mass, right? We need to step out of, you know, just sort of are we open or are we closed and instead say, how do we live with COVID long term? And how do we make sure people are safer in connection with it? On the, um, you know, make an analogy. I always make analogies to um, sexually transmitted diseases um, and nobody seems to like them. But actually, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? Like how we, how we control and contain is the exact same thing of STDs. So let's say that there was a huge syphilis outbreak in Kansas City tomorrow, which there probably is. So if such a thing were to occur, right, the way that we handle it is that we have to use contact tracing. So who have you been intimate with, right? We have to find some way to do it. And we also need resources to help address it. And one of the challenges that we run into in this situation is that um, you always have to make sure you're ready for something, even if you don't have the outbreak yet. You have to make sure that we continue to take the virus seriously. And you know that's kind of been what my biggest battle is in connection with this. In terms of personally, um, you know, I, I probably spent every day of my life in the last three years out, right? I, um, you know, this is probably better for both my liver and my, my like stomach, but, um, you know, I had dinner out every night, right? I had like, it, it's changed. And uh, instead, uh, you know, I'm home every day by uh, maybe 7.30 or 8, which is still kind of late, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been somewhat frustrating because the reason you run for mayor uh, is not for the money, it's for the people you get to interact with, the events you get to go to, kind of that world. And you don't, it doesn't really get refulfilled on Zoom. You are uh, uh, in, in the space where uh, the, you've been called a Nazi uh, by members of the uh, media. What do you do to keep your uh, emotional health uh, going well uh, during uh, things like that? So, you know, one of my biggest mistakes is um, that I do tend to read every not negative comment about me. Um, and it's weird because part of me feels like it is building thick skin, but I'm not sure it's necessarily healthy. Um, I've shared this story a few times, but you know, the thing that got me the most prepared for negative attacks was in the fall of 2018, I tweeted that the Chiefs, instead of playing international football games, should play a home game or should play a game in St. Louis. And for some reason, like that became, I'm trying to move the Chiefs to St. Louis and like, you know, all these dudes, like Billy Bob from Harrisonville was calling my office and he's like, hey, bro, you take my team, I take your life. And, uh, you know, I was getting mocked on sports talk radio. And I really just at a certain point had to tell my secretary, like, just go home. We're not going to take calls for about a day and a half. Um, and so sometimes that perspective helps a lot. That sort of reality that, you know, you know, some things are just absolutely preposterous. Um, I... I also, 
am not bad at kind of fighting back on even on social media sometimes. I actually enjoy responding to people and sparring a bit. Uh, it lets me know how right or wrong I am. Not with everybody, because some people are just clowns. Uh, but there are others that, you know, kind of, you can tell, aren't aren't necessarily knowledgeable of everything that's involved. So I do that. And then when I really need to, like, get out, I have some friends with, uh, you know, good backyards where we can socially distance uh, bonfire and do those sorts of things, which has been essential for me. Uh, finally, uh, what, what piece of advice do you want to impart to the people of the city right now? Kansas city, um, just keep, just be smart. You know, I think that, uh, as we reopen, there will be this, you know, inclination to go back to normal. I was actually, I still am on the law faculty at the university of Kansas. And so I was cleaning out my office the other day because what else to do on Sunday at 1 PM. So I went out to Lawrence and on my drive back, I decided to drive through town. And I saw all of these house parties. I mean, tons of students were, I assume, back. Probably kids from Johnson County and other surrounding areas. And, uh, you know, and they were in crowds of like 30 people and drinking and back to the same old revelry. And I was like, you know, I kind of get it. And they're young, so I kind of expect it. But... You know, the way we actually get back to fun, the way we get back to concerts, the way we get back to Chiefs games is by not having some huge outbreak. So let's be smart. Let's follow the mayor's crazy 10% capacity rule under 10-10-10. Let's keep social distancing for a while so that come September 10th, we're able to go back to school. We're able to go to a Chiefs game. We're able to go back to a concert at Knuckleheads that's actually normal and not oddly socially distanced, right? Like that's the sort of thing that I'd like to see. It would be crazy if people listened to their elected leaders. Well, uh, here's hoping that that goes down well. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Hey, thanks. Sorry about the delay. It was good to be with you. Ciao. Good to be with you. See you soon. Bye. Hello. Hello. Hi. Sorry, I had my my headphones were tangled. How are you, Dan? I'm fine. Um, Glad to finally get a chance to talk with you. Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, the first thing I've I've been noticing um, from looking at some of your films is that um, you make movies about people sitting and talking, but they never feel stiff or stilted. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that. It's a a big goal of mine. Is to make feel you know make make uh, characters that feel like real people having real conversations. Um, I know that improvisation definitely helps in that arena, and there's a lot of improvisation in my films. So, um, with for instance, Hump Day, my last film, it was just uh, ten pages of just an outline, you know, where I just described what needed to take place in every scene. But the actors came up 100% with their own dialogue. Um, I did that in that case because I had two veteran improvisers. But with your sister's sister, I had one veteran improviser in Mark Duplass. But I, I also had two actors who were less versed in that process. And so I had about 70 pages of dialogue written out. And then I said to them, you know, if you like a scene, uh, you like a line, feel free to use it. Um, but don't worry about the exact wording or even the order in which you use it with the other lines. And if you want to go completely off the grid, you know, and just come up with your own. And what's nice about improvisation is that you really have to be having a real conversation. It's like you're, it's like you're putting on 
a second skin. You know, you're sort of you're, you're in in character, but you have to play out a real conversation because somebody is going to give you a line that you're not say something to you you're not expecting, and then you have to respond as as that character really would respond. So it it brings a certain freshness and and uh, naturalism that is hard to capture any other way. Yeah, well, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting, where I thought you you and the cast pulled off a really delicate balancing act, is you've got uh, three people, especially uh, with Jack, who, um, well, you know, this guy begins the film with, you know, an, an almost belligerent diatribe, uh-huh. and yet we're still willing to follow him for 90 minutes. Yeah. Is it tricky <laughs> well, to I really, pull that off? I really wanted to introduce that character. I love the idea of, um, in general, showing these characters warts and all, and I, I sort of like the idea of warts first, you know, just like just bring on the flawed nature, the fallibility of this character right up front. You know, you, you uh, see him make this entire little party really uncomfortable, and you're probably feeling pretty uncomfortable yourself as an audience member about what he's doing, but I'm hoping that even by the end of that scene, you realize that he's an incredible amount of pain, you know, and that he's, um, he really did love his brother. You know, he loved his brother and probably knew his, his brother better than any of these people, and, and it just, you know, it just, for whatever reason, it came out in this really twisted kind of black way, but, <laughs> but, but at, its, at its core, it really actually is a good guy, and you really do see that, I think, uh, you know, in the next scene with his best friend, where he's much more of a teddy bear, you know, and, and sort of you you get that that uh, he even realizes right away what a terrible mistake he's just made, you know, and he didn't probably need to be so harsh on, on those poor people. But, um, yeah, I really like the idea of um, this this movie really is about the fallibility of, of being human, you know. I mean, everybody in the film makes missteps and mistakes and um, says things when they shouldn't say things and, doesn't say things when they should and do things that they shouldn't do and you know they there there are a lot of there's a lot of fumbles um, along the way as they try to navigate through their lives and the interpersonal dynamics between the characters and and that's and that's what makes us human you know so I'm hoping that the audience yeah. is kind of rooting rooting for them in spite of or maybe even because of you know their their flaws you know yeah, because, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I'd recently read a complaint from the director of Lola Versus, you know, saying, well, uh, how come the critics are so hard on this, on our movie with these flawed female characters? And I'm thinking, but we liked, but we liked your sister's sister. <laughs> wow. Well, that's... <laughs> I mean, why do you think, why do you think that maybe your film has had a, a warmer reception? Um, well, I, I don't know. I really, I don't know how, I, I, I can't put my finger on it. It's, it's, um, I do think people, I don't think it's the flawed nature of, of characters that people don't like, you know. Um, I, I think it's, um, yeah, boy, that, I have no idea how to answer that. I'm not sure what, I'm, I mean, I'm really happy to hear that you are rooting for these characters despite their flaws. And I, I, I think it's just a real balancing act. I mean, I really, I really tried hard to find that balance um, of, of making people feel 
sympathetic just even though they're flawed, you know, and, and it's, or again, almost because of, it's what sort of makes them human. And um, and I don't know if it's the overall, if, if it's the balance of, of uh, you know, seeing that kind of open, good-hearted nature of everybody um, alongside the missteps that, that they take, or if it's um, the fact that it, it's so resonant, if they feel so real, and so you 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 see people, you, you see these characters on screen, you're reminded of your own mistakes you've made, or or the mistakes yeah. that friends have made, and you know, and so there's kind of it's, the audience has the opportunity to sort of see the forest for the trees, and so they do a lot. What I'm what I like to call cringe laughter, where they're sort of cringing and wincing and yeah. laughing at the same time, but it's it's really in sympathy for the characters. It's like, oh, honey, you know, why are you doing that? You know, <laughs> that's probably not the best idea, you know, and you're, you're really, again, yeah. you're kind of rooting, rooting for them and wishing them well, and, you know, just like on the, I wanted to give the context of place, so right on the other side of the walls of the little cabin that they're in, you see there's this big, wide, huge, bucolic world of nature, um, yeah. and, and somehow it feels, it makes their problems seem even more poignant and, and puny, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the audience can see that. They can see the forest for the trees. They can see that, oh, this, you know, this too shall pass. You know, you guys are going to figure this out. You're going to be okay, you know, um, and it feels so big and huge to them, to the characters, but, you know, we can kind of get a little more perspective. Yeah, well, one thing that I really enjoyed about this, although it's one case where I never wanted to experience what the characters went through. I was struck by in the, in the scene with Hannah and Jack that, um, you know, when they fall into bed together, it wasn't like, say, oh, uh, a Lifetime movie where all the lighting is beautiful, <laughs> you hear a gentle string quartet, and, the, you know, these two perfectly formed bodies instantly <laughs> fall into each other. Because... I, 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 I'm not going to ask what your life was like in that department, but in mine, I've never had a meaningful or even physically pleasant experience with a woman unless she and I knew each other for a while and yeah. knew what each other liked. Right, right. And I found that so refreshing because, you know, when, I, when we see that he's um, climaxed early and all this other stuff, I thought, Mm-hmm. This is more like the way it really happens because unless right. you really, unless you and your partner really have a rapport together, it's yeah. clumsy and awkward. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad that it feels you. <laughs> I timed it. I timed it recently. I, I didn't. I had an opportunity. When we were doing the DVD commentary. I think it's a. I think it's a 12 second performance. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty amazing. Because, yeah, I mean, that, the, see, that was one of the things I liked about your film and the 40-year-old virgin. Uh-huh, that right, it, right. It, you know, I mean, you, you guys are, you know, lumped into two different classes, but the thing, the reason I think both of your movies work is that, you know, you acknowledge that, well, lovemaking in itself isn't necessarily uh, you know, a state of bliss or what have you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, it can be quite, yeah, quite painfully awkward and bad. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. what do you do to, shall we say, achieve that effect, you know, with the actors? Well, uh, you know, that's a classic example of just 
hiring the right people and getting out of the way and letting them do their job, you know. I mean, we we definitely all knew the intention was that, was was for it to be, um, was, was for it to not be uh, glamorous or sensationalized or romanticized in any any way, shape, or form. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean they just they just played it out. I mean that's really what it is. It's sort of and that that was one of the scenes. That I don't think there was probably any dialogue written. It was just it was just an outline, you know. And they have awkward sex. I don't even know. We just found it. We just found it in the in on the set, you know. <laughs> Well, I know that Christopher Guest often shoots hours and hours of footage, you know, and he works improvisationally as well. Mm-hmm. Do you do you shoot for like hours and then you keep the stuff where actually the magic occurs? I do definitely keep the stuff where the magic occurs, but we didn't have we didn't have time to shoot hours and hours. Um, we only had twelve days, and so I had to I had to whip through those scenes pretty quickly if I wanted to get everything in the can and. So, um, and being an editor myself, I come from an editing background, and I, you know, the last thing I want to do is have to sift through 200 hours of footage. And I, you know, I'm usually on a tight deadline. I want to get the thing edited in two months. It'll take you two months just to look at the footage if you've that many hours, right? So I just, I just want to get a good solid four or five, you know, takes of every scene. And, and once I feel like, okay, I've got it in there somewhere, you know, I can piece it all together between the takes that we have, um, I'll move on. And another big difference between me and, and Christopher Guest is that I'm not, this may seem disingenuous, but it's completely true. I, I don't know how many how humorous it's going to be ultimately, um, because when we're on set, we I don't want us, us to think I don't want the actors to think that they're making a comedy. I don't want to think I'm making a comedy because, especially with improvisation, I feel like the danger is that you're going to be setting up, you know, reaching for a joke or kind of there might be pressure that the actor feels like, oh, I have, now I have to be clever, I have to be entertaining, you know, I have to do a little soft shoot. And what I really am interested in is is the kind of comedy that comes directly out of the drama. Um, it's like two sides of the same coin. And so we're always playing everything really dead straight. You know, we're, we're, we're just playing to the truth of the moment, you know, the truth of the particular scene. And a lot of times what, what the audience laughs at most in the in the theater is are were the scenes that were the most dead serious, you know, on set, where we were really just... Yeah weren't feeling laughs at all, you know, and that's where that cringe laughter comes from, you know, is that, is that, um, yeah, they're really hand in hand, like the drama and the comedy are really, uh, really too tied together, you know, inextricably. For example, with Hump Day, the movie ends, I think, hilariously with these two guys admitting that um, this whole brave thing they thought they were going to do was just okay. This was a goofy, drunken idea, oh, and we're right. <laughs> and you know, I mean, because it'd be different if the two of them, you know, I mean, to me, it's it's like um, the idea of two straight guys having sex, frankly, isn't that much more profound than two gay guys having sex. Right. It's just that I, I guess, to me, it seemed to be that their egos were kind of stretching the idea past its true profundity. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. Well, and it was basically, it was just a dare. You know, they were both terrified to do this thing, and they couldn't back down. They both desperately wanted to back down, but they couldn't because they, they were going to lose face. 
it was absurd. The whole thing was just such a such an exercise in absurdity. Um, and yeah, when they finally realized that it's completely moronic. But that seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of your movies because one of the things I've noticed is so many of them seem to be built structured around anticipation and then disappointment. Like certainly with uh, We Go Way Back, you could certainly mm-hmm. see that in there. And, and there's a lot of it in Your Sister's Sister. Yeah, well, I think my my if you go back to sort of peel all the layers of the onion, at the core of what I'm really interested in as an artist is is the self, and and this way that you know, I mean, I'm interested in relationships, but ultimately it all comes back to the self and our own relationship with who we are, you know, and our own identities, you know. And I'm interested in how the self changes over time, um, how it evolves, and how. Uh, we change in relation to other people, you know, the context that we're in. We show different parts of ourselves sort of manifest or, or come out. And then also that, you know, we have this perception of who we think we are. And when we come up into, converse, into situations in our lives, and everybody does, where they have to face up to who they really are, <laughs> that can be a really painful, you know, moment um, if the perception of who we are and who we actually are don't quite jive, you know. Um, which it rarely does. And then there's also moments, I think, that your sister's sister is also about opportunity for for change, for change, you know, the change of perception of oneself or the change of actual change of one's direction, you know, of, one, of oneself and one's identity. Um, and, and those opportunities always come up in, they tend to come up in relationship to other people. You know, you, you whether it's um, an old friend appearing at, at the door, somebody you haven't seen for 10 years and, and it's like holding up a mirror to yourself and who you you once were and who who you thought yeah. you would become, you know, which is really what Hump Day is kind of about. Yeah. Um, and then trying to prove to yourself that yeah, no, I'm still that crazy guy that I was in college, you know, or whatever it is, you know, um, that those kinds of identity crises. Or in your sister sister, you've got a couple of people who are really down in the dumps. They're in these places of limbo because of this grieving, you know, either whether it's the death yeah. of a brother or the death of a relationship. And that puts you in this very vulnerable place of, like, you know, you're kind of – the edges of yourself kind of become blurry, you know, as they as they were actually – we always let back where you sort of – there are times when you, we, we lose our sense of self. And we're like, who the hell are we? And what what is proper behavior? <laughs> you know, what is the hell with impulse control? You know, and you kind of – you and, and you end up – that's a, a place where you end up making – the mistakes and taking taking steps on the journey that you know hopefully will end up okay, but you know may, may not for a while. May may take you into a darker place for a while. So those are the those are the areas, the arenas that I'm really really interested in, and it all it all comes back to to you know yeah to the self. Well, another thing I thought was kind of fascinating is I've gone as I went through your filmography, you practically do everything because you're on camera in Hump Day, you edit and. Uh, you're credited as producer on other people's films. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of interesting because um, you're, I mean, like I said, there are some people who just happily stand behind the camera. Oh, somebody got sick today. Could you stand in front of the camera? Sure, no problem. <laughs> oh, shoot. Is that, is that common for a lot of indie filmmakers to have to be able to do that? Um, I think so, yeah, I, and I think that there, I think that it's, it's um, both a nice kind of attitude 
um, to have when you're working with the small crews. And because you kind of, I mean, I want that out of my crew, you know. On large sets, like a union set, for instance, in Hollywood, you know, a, a, nobody would think to cross the boundary of their department because it's, it's just not, it's very frowned upon. And and for good, you know, reason, too, because it, it, it's militaristic, the, the structure is of the workflow and the, and the job division, the you know, it's just efficient. It's very efficient in that kind of context. But when you get a tiny little crew, you know, I, I love the fact that my my departments are all looking out for each other and they know that if they use this particular light, it might screw, it might, you know, bone the sound department because there's a buzz to it. And so they'll check with him, you know, Vinny, are you okay? You know, can you hear that? Okay, well, if we can hear it, then we'll change it. Or if you just, you just run in, you see that somebody needs an Apple box or somebody needs you know, some help in our department, you run over and you help. You know, if you're not doing something in your department, you run over and help them and, and you, you step in. Um, and and I love being on a set that allows me to do that too because on a bigger set they don't, they frown on <laughs> yeah. the director running in and playing around with the branches to get them looking just right or, <laughs> you know, yeah. for our department job or, or being a stand-in or whatever it is. And and um, sometimes I just I love being on set and watching people or being a part of people working so much that I'm I'm happy to just make any excuse to kind of insert myself into their work and but ultimately it just it creates a real sense of camaraderie you know and it makes it feel like we're all here for the same purpose to make this movie and and you know it's our movie and not my movie and it's it's it just creates a much more buoyant kind of atmosphere I think you know. Yeah. Now, uh, you had mentioned that uh, things were more regimented um, on a union, on a big union set. Uh, mm -hmm. But yet, you you've you've done two popular shows, and nobody said, "Oh, we don't want to work with her again." Why do you think you were able to adapt to Mad Men and The New Girl? Well, um, I mean, for one thing, it's actually the skill set of working very efficiently and not shooting hours and hours and not, and not um, you know, lingering <laughs> um, to get a movie made is, it turns out that's a really good um, training ground for TV because TV is fast. It's really, you've got you've to move quickly. Um, and so I think, it, I don't know if it's my editing background com combined with the, with the fact that I've made several films, you know, in under two weeks. Um, but it really it was a good it was a good fit in that way. So I would get on set and I would be able to make decisions quickly and I'd able to I'd be able to move quickly. There was one night I remember when I only had an hour and a half to shoot, you know, four hours worth of stuff because they weren't gonna let us have any overtime that night and I just wow. made really quick decisions and was like, Okay, well let's just we're just gonna power through this, you know, and and we did it and they didn't have to do reshoots and it was kind of miraculous, you know. So it's, I think that that helps a lot, and, and it turns out that it's all, it really is all the same job, like directing is directing is directing. You're still, you're, you're deciding what, in collaboration with your team, but you ultimately are the final, you know, gatekeeper of what is in the frame, what, everything that unfolds in the frame of the camera. So how the yeah. camera moves or doesn't move what it includes in the frame, where the ang what the angle is, how high or how low is it going to be, and then what's unfolding in front of it, like what, you know, ultimately where does the ashtray go here in the foreground or does it go there in the background, you know, and then, and then the acting work, of course, you know, so making the scene, working with the actors to find the shape of the scene and to 
figure out exactly when, you know, the tears start falling or whatever it is. You know, it's it's all the same. And it's just that on TV, I'm working to fulfill somebody else's creative vision, not my own. And so it's actually harder because you have to sort of channel um, the creator. Um, but I really enjoy it. I think it's really, really, in my, my MO is collaboration. I really love, love, love to collaborate with the crew and with the cast and with the producers. And, um, and it's kind of nice as a change to not have to be the final, you know, ultimately responsible for the creative vision, overall creative vision. You know, it's nice to just get in there and be a part of the team and help somebody else make their, their vision come true. You know, it's, it's, it's a nice kind of breather for me in a way. And yet I still get to flex my director muscles. So I enjoy it, and I hope that um, other people enjoy it enough to keep bringing me back or, you know, hiring me to do it because it's, it's a really good time for me. Well, one of the things I think is kind of interesting is that, you know, with Mark Duplass, you've got somebody who, you know, does quite a bit of directing himself. Mm-hmm. And clearly you don't seem remotely intimidated, uh-oh, here's a threat to my power. <laughs> well, um yeah, Mark is, you know, he's got two very distinct <laughs> careers, and he talks about when he's on set as an actor, he loves being able to just fly in and do his days, you know, and then get out of there. He's kind of like an uncle, you know, with a baby. <laughs> he doesn't have yeah. to actually raise the kid or see it off to college. Um, and he's really good at, you know, he never, he I never feel remotely threatened or usurped you know, power-wise. I'm asking, I mean, I find it incredible boon that he's a, a writer and a director because he always, I'm always asking for his contributions, along with everybody else. I mean, everybody on set is, their their contributions are going to be valued, including, you know, the craft services person. I mean, really, genuinely, but especially the, the actors. You know, all the actors are being asked to bring their ideas to the set. And it's a very, I hope, you know, ego-free kind of, place where after a while you don't even know where the ideas are, are coming, you know, originating from. So, um, yeah, I find it I find it incredibly helpful that he has that kind of, those all those different skill sets because they all come to, you know, to bear um, ultimately and I get to be the recipient of, of, of them. So it's great. Yeah, well, I also know that Ms. Blunt got her start in My Summer of Love. You know, she worked on films kind of similar to yours. Yeah, before well, that one, she that one was the only one. Yeah, I mean that first one was the only only other improvised film she's ever done, and so that was really helpful to hear that she had had that experience because it made me feel confident that she could do it again. You know. Yeah, because I thought that was kind of interesting. Because my first thought was, "Wow, you got an A-lister here. Wouldn't that change your whole mo?" Yeah, well, I was, I, that was one of my, you know, that was frankly one of my goals with this film was to see what it would be like, you know, if, if I worked with movie stars, you know, <laughs> could that, could it be done? What would, it, what would that be like, you know? And it, this, this one happened to work great. It worked absolutely really, really well. I mean, both of those veteran actors, um, who were used to much bigger sets were completely, they came to the project completely engaged. You know, they just dove in with all with a totally open heart and mind, and they really risked it all. I mean, they just they they brought they just I just couldn't believe how wonderful it was to work with them. They they really really because a project like this you really have to like bring it 110 percent. Like you just have to 
put yourself out there and know that you might fall on your face, you know, know there might be a lot of misfires, and just have total trust and total, um, uh, you know, just really be there for each other and, and for me. And they, and they really did. You know, they really took the whole project to heart and, and just dove in, and um, there was no, no diva behavior on set. There was no – or offset, for that matter. You know, they all hung out. We all hung out together. We were all living – you know, I started kidnapped my cast and crew, and we were living <laughs> and eating and hanging out like a stone's throw away, you know, from the – from the set, so we had this amazing home-cooked meal, and I gave the I gave the um, two actresses their own little sort of fancy cabin as a getaway. But and they did; they would hole up sometimes late at night and and in bond, you know, and create more more sort of chemistry that was going to work for us on set the next day. But they hung out with the crew and you know everybody else, just like just like the rest of us, and, and uh, participated in the occasional dance party, and you know. Okay. <laughs> It was really fantastic. Okay. Well, I've got one final question for you. Okay. Great. Um, I'm just curious. One of the things I think that's kind of fascinating is your movies often deal with, uh, shall we say, a kind of a tension between people who are bohemians and people who sort of go along with the program. And I think mm-hmm. that's a kind of an interesting irony because you, for example, have been married for seven years, I mean for 20 years to Kevin Seal. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, someone who, you know, has been able to stay, um, shall we say, on the program could still look at those who don't fit in rather honestly. Uh-huh. Well, it's, yeah. that's not really – it's interesting because I, I really actually feel – people used to ask me that in Hump Day, like, who do you, who do you feel you're more, more of a kinship with, you know, Ben or Andrew? And I, and I really do feel like I'm, I'm both people because even though I'm – I'm married. I don't feel domesticated. <laughs> you know, I get to be this. I get to be this wild and crazy hippie artist. You know, and I get to have. I get to have. You know, I get to go around to film festivals and have. You know, party, and I get to like. I like. I like it. You know, I get to have a full artistic life, a creative life. So I feel incredibly blessed because I sort of get the best of both worlds. Like I get to have this really wonderful, stable. Um, incredibly deeply satisfying family, and then I also get to be an artist, and and so I think that sometimes <laughs> the dichotomy, you know, maybe maybe uh, comes out on on screen. It's funny. It does. I don't even think about it, but you're right. It does. It does tend to emerge again and again. Well, listen. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're going to laugh at this, but I'm about to get a tooth filled. Um, oh. But I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for making a movie I could sit through. You're so welcome, and I'm impressed that you saw my first film. I can't believe you've seen them all. That just blows my mind. So, so few people saw that movie. Um, and good luck with the with the tooth. That sounds just absolutely like a terrible way to spend an afternoon. So. Oh, it's only a small one, and the drugs they're going to give me are going to be magnificent. Oh, good. Enjoy them very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast this week. I I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Please subscribe. Please tell your friends about it. And please uh, chip in a buck or two towards the pitch. We are having a hard time just like everyone else in journalism, but we're working very hard to keep bringing you all of the content that we hope you enjoy and important news. Uh, Thepitchkc.com, that's that's the place to go to to read all the cool stuff. Uh, We have had... Just a blockbuster week of a ton of interesting, bizarre articles, reviews, 
some cool music, uh, a movie that doesn't make any sense. I think you'll really, really enjoy this uh, if you uh, pop on over there and see what we've been up to. This has been the Streetwise Podcast. I'm Brock Wilbur. Pitch in, and we'll make it through.